If healthcare plays a relatively small role in how healthy any of us is, there's an awful lot else that needs to happen at home, at school, in the community, at work, at the gym to improve our health status. But the healthcare delivery system, the hospital, the clinic, often stand at the intersection of what's working and what isn't on the outside. So while the focus has historically been to address the medical picture only, new thinking has providers looking much further upstream stream for problems that are contributing to poor health. Sometimes this means tapping into legal assistance to address unsafe housing conditions or to get a child critical educational or social services. It's more than a handoff or a referral though. We're going to be talking about medical legal partnerships on this edition of WIHI. And happy new year everyone and welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement offered by weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And if you're attending WIHI for the first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you. On this program, we try to offer cutting-edge improvement innovations, and we're always excited by endeavors that keep pushing the envelope on how to achieve the triple aim, better health, better health care, and lower per capita costs. So let me introduce our guests, and a reminder that there are longer bios for each of them on the WIHI pages of IHI.org and on the websites of our guests' organizations. For first up, and here in the studio with me, is Dr. Barry Zuckerman. He's the Joel and Barbara Albert Professor of Pediatrics at Boston University School of Medicine, also Chief of Pediatrics at Boston Medical Center. He is a national and international leader in health and child development disparities. Barry started the Medical Legal Partnership for Children 13 years ago, and in 2006, the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership, which covers all age groups. So welcome to – and he's going to explain all that, so welcome, Barry Zuckerman. Oh, thank you very much, Madge. Right. Uh, sometimes people ask me – you know, right, me we're going to hold, hold that thought. One okay. second. I'm going to introduce everyone. Oh, I'm sorry. Barry's very – we've got a great uh, – op- some great opening lines here, so uh, we're going to get everybody introduced, and uh, we'll be right back to you. So now someone who's going to explain uh, what difference some of this can make on the ground at a busy urban children's hospital is Dr. Robert Kahn, co-director of the Cincinnati Child Health Law Partnership and associate professor and research section director in the Division of General and Community Pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Rob, or Robert, is a general pediatrician and child health researcher whose main interest lies at the intersection of poverty and child health, trying to understand what leads to worse health among poor children and where we might intervene most effectively. So Rob's on the phone from Cincinnati. Welcome to WIHI. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. And it's terrific to have Carol Beasley with us again on WIHI, also in the studio. Carol is the Director of Strategic Projects at IHI, and one of those projects has been the very exciting Triple AIM initiative focused on improving population health and individuals' experience of health care while stabilizing or reducing per capita cost. Since its inception, this work has engaged over 100 teams in nine countries. Carol knows of many teams who will find today's discussion of medical legal partners 
partnerships quite relevant to their own initiatives. So welcome, Carol. Thank you. All right. So let's get started. And um, you're going to hear from me, but mostly my guests, thankfully, until the bottom of the hour. And then we'll open things up to your questions and comments. So if you're just getting on board, you came to the right place. This is WIHI, and we're talking about medical legal partnerships. What does all this have to do with health and health care? So I'm going to start off by getting some quick comments from each of my guests, and that's what Barry was very eager to share. And it's just a kind of headline I asked for almost like an opening tweet just to set the stage. So here's my uh, provocation to all of you. There is nothing new or unusual, perhaps, about a medical professional, a doctor or a nurse, medical assistant, becoming aware, aware of circumstances in a patient's life that may be impacting health, be it poor housing, domestic violence, a recent job loss, lack of food in the house. However, the reason we're focusing on this issue on today's WIHI is that the imperative to know, indeed to seek out the information and to respond to the social issues is becoming as central, dare I say, as maybe knowing whether the patient has strep throat or whether they've had all their screenings. So what is going on, Barry? We'll start with you. What's so significant? What's your headline? Well, my, my headline is, you know, people ask me, why, why do doctors need lawyers to help them take care of patients? And, and in reality, I do need their help because uh, for years I saw my patients uh, as a pediatrician. The children would get uh, recurrently ill, get readmitted uh, for problems that my children didn't have to necessarily uh, suffer. And I, I've learned in medical school that there are these psychosocial problems and they overwhelm you know most physicians, let alone patients. Uh, but through a, a conversation with a lawyer, I realized that actually there are a number of laws that provide protection and benefits for vulnerable people. And what I consider poor people's problems, some were, but some actually were violations of these legal uh, benefits and protections. And that because it's that violation, a, a lawyer, like a clinician, can make a difference. And when you really think about it, doctors can address the biologic aspects of health and lawyers training or such, the social aspects. And when I say social, I'm talking about really basic needs. I'm talking about food, housing, safety uh, and access to appropriate services. Nothing fancier than that when you think about Maslow's uh, triangle. All right. Okay. That's your headline. That's your, that's, that's Barry's. <laughs> More than my headline. <laughs> that's his opening paragraph. That's the first graph in his story, his news story here. All right. We'll, we'll be right back to you, so stand by here. I'm going to get Carol's headline. Carol? Sure. Well, thank you, Madge. And I think it's it's a truism that health healthcare systems and healthcare practitioners know very well that a lot of the demand or the need for the care that they provide could probably have been avoided or or lessened, alleviated somewhat if it had been possible to go further upstream. So, you know, often the the things that cause us to seek medical care I have a long have a long history. So to really tackle these issues, by the time someone arrives in a physician's or a, a nurse's clinical office, it's pretty late in the game. So, so we believe that getting a handle on some of these issues is going to require a lot of uh, a pretty broad approach to partnering with both the formal and the informal groups who care about people long before the healthcare system is caring for them. So when it when it comes to uh, medical legal partnerships, I think as as I listen to this and as as I would encourage all of our partners in the AAA and anyone interested in that type of work to do, is to listen to it as a provocative idea and a valuable idea in its own right, and perhaps 
um, as, as something that points to a whole category of solutions that we could begin to explore if we're really going to leverage the triple aim. Uh, healthcare is kind of something that happens pretty late in the game. Those needs generally develop for a long time before before someone shows up in a doctor's office. Okay, thank you very much, Carol Beasley. We're still working on. Uh, some of you are telling me that uh, maybe Rob didn't sound like he was breaking up, and maybe just to our ear. So we're still working on it because we're going to start. We'll come back to Rob. Promise, uh, Barry. I'm going to now's now's your moment. Um, <laughs> Waiting. <laughs> waiting in the wings uh, for this performance. So when you began to lay the groundwork for what you dubbed medical legal partnership or partnership over a decade ago, my guess is you were looking at the situation right then, but you probably didn't even envision the health world we're in right now. So I'm curious, what were you thinking then, and what are you thinking now, Where, which perhaps makes this national initiative all the more relevant? I, I was thinking in a very limited way of helping my patients. So the child who had recurrent asthma was missing school and his mother was missing work uh, because of housing conditions including mold and, and a number of other conditions that were against code and the mother uh, complained to the landlord. We wrote the usual letter to the landlord. Nothing happened. The illness continued even in the face of the child taking his medications and then I called another specialist uh, and literally six weeks later the child wasn't wheezing anymore back at school and the mother was not missing work anymore. That specialist was a lawyer. The lawyer made two telephone calls the, the lawyer made two telephone calls to the landlord and that's really all it took. Uh, we don't, it's not about going to court but the thing that doctors and patients don't know, we don't know what the law says. And, you know, we could go into a whole litany of, of the child's medical illness, but that's not what moves things. It's This is the law, and it appears that, you know, there's a problem, and this, particularly this child's ill. And, and it, the, the calculus is pretty easy for someone on the other end. Um, they don't would rather spend money fixing it than spending money in court. Um, so that was our, our, my patients, but it's grown so much, it's gone beyond pediatrics to the elderly and now cancer patients at a place like Dana-Farber because we believe these stresses in someone's lives could have impact on adherence to medication. It certainly could exacerbate you know, a vulnerable condition that, and exacerbate the physiologic changes that causes illness, all kinds of mechanisms. So we've gone beyond children, we've gone beyond individual patients to systems changes to how do we use our electronic medical record to write shutoff protection letters so people don't are protected against utility shutoff, to help people around evictions, to help with SSI things, and of course we're going to also be moving towards legislative changes. But just to take it one step further, each step started with this and it's the 200 plus sites around the country continue to innovate. Um, so besides these system changes, in many cities, we have now pro bono law firms who are providing support. And actually in Boston, we have over 10 law firms who have adopted uh, five community health centers. Talk about a very powerful uh, connection. And usually pro bono lawyers see their patients in their fancy downtown offices. In this case, the, the pro bono lawyers are going to the community health center. So even at, at a community level, you're tying these very important agencies together. Plus, I'd like to think we're creating the next generation of doctor-lawyer leaders who have worked together and can make a difference legislatively. And also, we, we've gone beyond primary care where we started. And I think particularly in the changing healthcare environment, when we're worried about readmission and um, 
and, and quality of care that that it's in these vulnerable populations, special whether it's again cancer or asthma patients or any specialty problem, that having the material home environment stabilized, you know, could keep people at home instead of coming back. Because even as a doctor, a, a vulnerable, you know, a, a person with an illness comes back after a hospitalization, and we say, you know, he's he's not that sick, but we can't send them back to that home. Not enough food, not enough this. So I, I see it having huge implications uh, for some of the cost issues uh, in addition to the quality issue. Okay, thank you very much. And you've just been listening to Barry Zuckerman uh, about uh, the National Medical Legal Partnership. I have one very, very quick question, and then we're going to turn to Rob. And we do have Rob back, which is terrific. Um, Barry, if just in a nutshell, what does the an entity, uh, National Medical Legal, what, so I'm, I'm hearing this program today, I'm a community center, I'm a health uh, care provider, so how would I start this? What, what would happen, don't go through necessarily how every, all the steps yet, no. but what would happen if they call you? Can you sort of provide sort of some of the jump start we, materials? We provide technical assistance, we have a toolkit, you know, our right. job is to, is to make it work. Um, you know, with all, with, it took us 10 plus years to work out the kinks of this because there are a lot of cultural and other difference between doctors and lawyers, but we can at least help people avoid the same problems we run into. People have to run into their own problems, but <laughs> our job at the National Center was to develop best practices, to work on sustainability strategies around financing, and to provide technical assistance. Okay, that's terrific. Okay. And there is a, um, we're going to get into this maybe a little bit more, but um, maybe we'll throw up that slide, John, the uh, we took this from um, the website and some introductory material, and I think it begins to show kind of the uh, old way and new way or older way and newer way that we're, we're hoping to get to. And I think uh, we'll bring this slide up again as, as we get into more of this. But this is the kind of thing that you can find on the website that's listed right there at the bottom. Okay, thanks, Barry Zuckerman. All right, now we're going to turn back to Rob, Rob in Cincinnati. And uh, it, it, I'm sorry that we were only getting every other word, but I bet that's uh, maybe that's been smoothed out now. So you didn't get a chance to give your headline, uh, but now you can merge your headline with um, feeding a little bit off of Barry's remarks. How does, so um, Barry just gave us a framework uh, for um, a partnership. What does it look like at Cincinnati Children's? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll outline briefly, basically, the mismatch between needs and services. What this is a picture of is the variation in asthma admission rates in, in Hamilton County, where Cincinnati sits, over 93 neighborhoods, you see over a 25-fold variation in asthma admission rates, you know, uh, concordant with poverty levels in the higher-end areas. And, and basically, the mismatch is in a classic primary care setting, there's very little one can do about that outside of the exam room. And to me, the beauty of the medical legal program and partnership is we're, we're hand in glove with a highly effective community agency of legal aid. And if you go to the next slide, you know, what it lets us do is take on those kinds of conditions that influence uh, children's outcomes. So here's a picture of a couple apartments of kids in our practice where we ended up partnering with legal aid 
um, to take on really horrible housing conditions that our families go back to that until this program started, none of our docs or residents or nurses or social workers had really uh, come directly to terms with this. And so just to set the frame of the clinic and how we got it going practically, uh, we have a primary care center at the hospital, two affiliated uh, clinics, over 60, 65,000 Medicaid visits per year. Um, and what we now have operating in terms of legal help is we have a legal advocate uh, on site at the main clinic five days a week. And I think um, the key is that we have figured out sort of what the, the most efficient process flow map is from a doctor identifying an issue during an encounter, or even sometimes it's the medical assistant uh, uh, as the patient's coming in to handing it off uh, to our uh, legal team. Uh, occasionally, depending on the complexity of the issue, it goes to the social worker as well. Um, and we were up to uh, over 550 uh, referrals each year on that patient base. And really, the program started very small. You asked, how does it get started? It started out with um, a meeting where we had heard about it, but the legal side and the doctor side had heard about it. We sat down. It started out just with uh, telephone referrals and email correspondence, uh, small grant, uh, memorandum of understanding them between two institutions, and then literally this, this rapid growth. Um, on the next slide, just what helped drive the growth and is in, unique in our place is this use of an electronic health record adapted to address social health needs. So if you back up one very briefly. Okay, uh -huh. uh, go back. One slide, you see, you know, we negotiated between doctors, lawyers, and social workers uh, how to begin to elicit, elicit this uh, from families. And we've started with having the doctor ask the questions because we think that's uh, where the trust center uh, may lie in a, in a clinical encounter, but others have experimented with waiting room surveys. But basically, we can drive um, the questioning uh, through the use of electronic health record. And in the next slide shows uh, if there are positives, we can directly refer uh, through the EHR to our lawyers, as easy as if we were, were referring directly to pulmonology or to um, cardiology. And what this has done is let us take sort of a quality improvement approach to it. We can track what our case finding rate is, what our total referrals are. On the legal aid side, they keep a database of their intake. We can, we can determine our successful handoff rate, uh, what percent of all our referrals make it to intake or make it to full case uh, opening on the legal aid side. Um, as far as outcomes go, and then I'll finish up, I think, um, on the next slide, uh, it's the kind of thing that leads to attacking social determinants directly. So what I've put up here is a picture uh, of our most successful sort of visible outcome, which is what we had done. We had referred one kid with bad housing, then a third, then a fifth. What it turned out was we had 17 kids all referred for poor housing where the doctors didn't see the link. It was only by partnering with Legal Aid where they realized it was a single New York developer who owned all 19 buildings. Uh, who had gone into foreclosure, and all of the buildings were in disrepair. Legal Aid went in, formed tenant groups, took on Fannie Mae, and the next slide was uh, ensuring that several hundred thousand dollars went into repairing the roof. So, again, this is something doctors alone wouldn't have accomplished. It's only by, by partnering with an effective agency that we can take on uh, sort of the root of the problems when it's not a matter of more and more flow vent. It really ideally is a matter of getting kids in healthy homes and among the other many benefits legal aid can provide.
I'll stop there. Thanks so much, Rob. It's really interesting. And um, a reminder to everyone that if you're logged on to the program today, uh, viewing this on computer, you can download all these slides when you get off. And if for any reason uh, either you're on the phone or you forget that step, just let us know at info at IHI.org. These are very helpful. And I think this embedding in the electronic health record is really uh, kind of groundbreaking. Uh, uh, Carol, uh, I, I think I was thinking meaningful use. Carol wears many hats and is working on in that area as well. So, Carol, we got some opening uh, kind of framing from, from Barry. Here we've got an on-the-ground uh, situation at Cincinnati Children's, and I know you've had some collaboration with Rob. So I'm just curious. Uh, I, of course, you know, we, we know this is really part of the triple aim, but what, what specifically is, is going on here that strikes you? Well, I think what is so um, vividly uh, described and depicted here is what, I'll just repeat Rob's um, words, and that is focusing on the social determinants of health. It is um, a sometimes frustrating realization, and it's something that we've had to come to grips with as we've started to work on the triple aim, to look um, honestly at how weak a lever healthcare is in terms of promoting health. It's a fairly weak lever. Behavior is much stronger. Social circumstances are stronger than health, even though we invest so much in health as a society. So all of the partners that we've been working with um, now in several countries over several years uh, to address the three legs or the three points on the triple aim triangle, better health, better care, and lower cost, naturally find themselves needing to look upstream, needing to look outside of the boundaries of the healthcare system. Um, and just referring back to my earlier comment that that the the demand for care is very much shaped by things that are happening way outside the healthcare system. The healthcare system is a more responsive system than than uh, than we sometimes are, are willing to um, acknowledge and come to grips with. So some of the things that we've seen that I think relate very strongly to this the medical legal partnership idea, and I would I would put them forward as additional examples of this principle, um, involve uh, engaging the social sector. So one of our one of our um, partners, the Genesis System, uh, in the, in the Flint, Michigan area, their care navigators. They realized very soon that their care navigators couldn't just be experts on navigating the healthcare system. They had to navigate the housing system and the domestic violence system and the job training system and the substance abuse. Uh, system and all of those things were uh, contributors to the health results that their patients were getting in a part of the country that had been pretty has been pretty hard hit by the economic crisis where there is a lot of social stress. Um, we've seen a lot of work on the housing side and the examples we've heard uh, come from from housing to illustrate uh, one particular aspect of what could be accomplished in partnership with legal uh, assistance. Um, our partners in Common Ground have actually worked from the point of view of homeless individuals, folks who do not even have homes, and to start to really think about the the benefits both human and economic in getting people housed, getting them appropriate care and support rather than putting them in expensive hospital care that doesn't in the long run really solve the problem. We've seen similar work to that in other countries. Um, the United Kingdom and Eastern and Coastal Kent has done a lot of work around the impact of deteriorated and aging housing on the health of a largely immigrant population that may not may be cooking their food on radiators. Um, it's you know it's the similar kind of challenge that uh, that we're we're hearing from Cincinnati and and from Barrie and Boston. Um, another facet of this is is employers. Employers I think are increasingly becoming aware that a lot of what 
they are encouraging in the workplace or encouraging among their employees, again, is going to shape those social determinants so that the downstream use of health care will be more appropriate, will be more affordable, will be a, a lighter touch because things haven't developed to be so acute. So I guess just in, in wrapping up my comments, I would say that when we look at this from a AAA point of view, the horizons are, are almost endless. That in this country and in other countries where we have worked, um, organizations exist that are working on those upstream causes. Um, to cite one example, I had a recent conversation with a senior leader from the United Way Worldwide, and they are working on uh, basically three issues. They work on health directly, but they also work on education and they work on income. All of those are powerful determinants of health. So for for health systems that are interested in stepping out and stretching out, the medical legal partnership is an avenue. Your United Way is an avenue. Your faith community is an avenue. There are many, many avenues around you that you can take an advantage of. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Okay, there now. thank you very much. Uh, just listening uh, to Carol Beasley before her, Rob Kahn and Barry Zuckerman is here, and we're talking about medical legal partnerships. Um, before we open things up for questions and comments, and uh, thank you again, everyone, for your patience as we resolved a few technical issues today. I'm curious, um, maybe Barry and Robert, uh, Rob both, you could speak to this. So you've got 200 sites going around the country. You could probably have, you know, quadruple uh, that uh, in terms of the need. So talk a little bit. I'm almost anticipating some questions, uh, if history is any judge on chat, about um, barriers and kind of uh, how how you've managed to maybe work through some of them, sort of the, the common things that come up uh, when even best intentions are out there, but folks are not quite sure how to move this forward. You've got resistance maybe and other kinds of things coming from various corners. Early on, there was a lot of resistance from uh, general counsel in hospitals and the hierarchy say, I'm not going to have lawyers running around my hospital. They're going to sue doctors. And uh, I, we were able to get past that by saying, you know, once once that happens, the good work for patients will end, and that's not why they're here. Um, and once we got some, you know, uh, very important hospitals with uh, special reputations on board, there was a lot of political cover. So that one's gone. And I think, you know, the challenges remain, you know, how do you integrate a new piece to, to have it function um, efficiently? And, for instance, there's some cultural differences, as I alluded to. We, we learned that lawyers have a tendency not to provide a feedback loop if someone refers them what they would call a client. As doctors, we always provide feedback. Uh, our ethos is we care about what's happening to the patient. We want to know what's happening to the patient. And, we, you know, the lawyers had to learn that they have to get back to the doctor and say, I saw your, I saw your patient. We did blah, such and such. Now, of course, then there's some confidentiality issues that they really can't get back to a doctor unless a, a, uh, uh, someone signs a consent for it. But we've been able to work um, work these things out. Uh, there, you know, it, it's easy to start a, any siloed program, but the most important programs are integrated, a new piece integrated, and that that's a challenge. And so the legal system had to integrate a flow, you know, from the hospital lawyers to other specialty lawyers. We have to integrate with the social worker, the healthcare team, and et cetera. But we've been able to master almost all of those ch challenges, and the future barrier is just going to be sustainability. But again, I, I think if we can align 
the, the, the work and the benefit to patients to the cost issues, which I believe we can, um, I think that's going to be the key for sustainability. Okay. Thanks a lot, Barry Zuckerman. All right, Rob, uh, quickly from you, uh, you've, you've got a real system going, no less uh, the integration right into the health record. Uh, so you're really, uh, you know, bending some curves here. Um, but I am sure that there are, uh, continue to be some challenges and um, barriers, and I'm wondering how you've either, either overcome them or hope to. Yeah, I think they, they echo berries. Um, I think one of the ones that came up early is, is this a mission creep? You know, we, where doctors aren't and medical clinics aren't here to solve world uh, hunger, so uh, what are we up to? And I think um, that is highly resolvable, and it's ever more resolvable in today's environment where the issue is on a triple-aim kind of initiative where it's really about cost per capita, and people really do want to take on a more preventive role. So I think the very clear goals and aims and knowing what where our responsibility in healthcare ends and how we interdigitate with uh, the legal team's pickup of responsibility, I think that helps ease everyone's concern about uh, an expanding mission and where our where our responsibility is. I think the other piece is the financial um, support and sustainability that Barry mentioned. And you know I will say community agencies uh, feel quite empowered when they can add a medical story and a medical um, and a face to the kinds of work they do, and this is a highly novel uh, angle for them. So that's been uh, a positive for overcoming the finance financial piece. When I when I sit down with a uh, with the legal team to look for funding, I think the other again is the changing uh, reimbursement environment. Hopefully, will support these kinds of relationships more easily. Okay, thanks a lot, Rob. And I think what we'll do now, uh, John, is we'll go ahead and open things up for questions and comments. One of the questions, maybe I'll um, ask Carol to think about, and maybe all of you have some beat on this, mm-hmm. is what is going on in the external environment right now that would sort of help um, move some of this along in terms of the various initiatives. Uh, Initiatives either coming out of Washington or elsewhere. So maybe we'll circle back to that in, in just a moment. Hold that thought. But let's at least start opening things up so we can find out what's on the minds of those of you who've joined us today, and we're so glad that you did. So, John, you want to remind everybody about chat. Yeah, just real quickly, we're going to open chat up to everybody. So if you have a question, make sure that you address it to all participants so the panelists can see it, uh, the folks in the chat can see it, and most importantly, Madge can see it. Uh, we don't want any good questions to uh, get lost in the crack. So uh, go ahead. All right, very good. We welcome uh, any of your thoughts. And uh, while you're, uh, again, uh, you gotta you got to uh, type those in there. Um, all right, so while we're waiting, maybe I'll have Carol go ahead and, and say something about that, about that external environment. What, what would you say about that right now? Sure. Well, I think that much of what we see in the in the, the discourse around healthcare reform is still pretty focused within the edges of what we would typically consider to be the healthcare system. So there's lots and lots of attention to things like bundled payments. There's attention to things like accountable care organizations. And I would suggest that those, those are positive developments, but probably insufficient to really tackle the kinds of opportunities that we're speaking about in this conversation. Um, where one of the challenges is to relax our own notions about what the edges of our system really are. And if we start to look at the system through the eyes of those we serve, um, you know, their, their housing conditions are not separated from their health uh, challenges, are not separated from their circumstances at work or their ability to find or not to find work. So, so all of those things from the point of view of the person or the community are connected. They may not, be, they may not look so connected for us. So I think it requires us to start to enlarge our sense of what 
what those meaningful connections really are. The um, the on the large scale, on the macro scale, I do think that there is pressure, but it's not been converted into particular policies yet. We know that states are going broke. We know that employers are stressed by having to pay for health care at ever-increasing uh, levels and, and that that suppresses their own ability to, to do their work and to generate economic benefit for their communities. So <clears throat> when we look excuse me, when we look at the very large picture, I think we can see the, an urgency, but we may not have quite the buttoned-up mechanism to help us address that now. So I think in a situation like that, the opportunities are abundant for uh, trying things, for prototyping things, for looking to where the will is, for looking to where the ideas are, for trying on a very small scale to execute small tests of change the way Barry described for an initial patient that he suddenly realized he might have another another um, strategy that he could employ to make a difference for that person. Um, I, another, another thought I might share is that we won't we won't get to where we need to get to if we wait around for some incentive systems to be created for, for doing these things. I think we need to start now and perhaps, um, again, as Barry and, and Rob have described, let's talk about taking away some of the disincentives. Let's talk about lowering some of the barriers to cooperation and not wait around for someone else to design a system that will that will mesh comfortably with our work. So it does. it's going to take some pioneering. It's going to take some improvement skills. It's going to take the willingness to kind of step outside our normal edges um, and really look through the patient's eyes is what's at what's needed. Okay, thanks a lot, Carol. All right, finally, uh, some of the things are scrolling in. Uh, welcome your questions and your comments. Uh, one that has come up, uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask Barry this because he's maybe can sort of speak to this nationally. Somebody is saying here that uh, they could imagine home health agencies uh, playing a really important role here. Is that something that's already taking place? I, I think uh, in every community, you know, the people have aligned themselves, you know, uh, where where the action is. So I think what what pleases me a lot about the, the literally this medical legal partnership movement. There's been no federal money. There's been no foundation money. People at a community level are getting together to do the best by people who live in that community. Doctors call them patients. Lawyers call them clients. I guess they're clients to the home health agencies. But the only limitation is your imagination. If, if, if there are these barriers to someone's health that have to do with violating the protections and benefits entitled to vulnerable people, then lawyers can help. Okay, thank you very much, Barry Zuckerman. Here's an interesting question, um, and I'm going to hold for just a, a moment. Some people are asking about training and and a student getting some of this stuff into uh, medical school and nursing training. Uh, somebody has written, at the VA we confront uh, patients with physical and psychological issues that make it easy for them to become overwhelmed by their legal issues. Our social workers do their best to refer them to legal aid, but they are also overwhelmed. So um, that must be a common thing. Why don't I let um, Barry go there? And I also, um, I'm curious about this referral notion, whether in fact there's a new notion that's needed. Well, two, two things. One is, one, one advantage we did is the lawyers are on site in the healthcare. So that 
you know, makes referral a little easier because it's a team referral. The reality is there's an inadequate number of legal aid lawyers for all the people with legal problems. That's well documented. My hope is that we have health care teams, and by having a lawyer back them up, that members of the team, particularly social workers, if not nurses or case managers, learn more over time. And while the lawyers don't like us to say solve legal problems because that's what lawyers and their degrees do, they can help patients solve problems at a higher, more sophisticated level by what they're going to learn. So I think we're going to be able to increase the capacity of and the healthcare team to solve these legal problems, always still needing the lawyer for the more complicated. But from my point of view, the lawyer is like the medical specialist. You know, the team can, you know, and an educated team with a social work take care of 70, 90 percent of problems. And the lawyer, after they're trained, particularly about the law, and the lawyer be left for the most difficult, uh, most resistant problems. Okay. Rob, uh, feel free to weigh in, and I think I'm also going to lob this question to you, uh, having to do with maybe training of staff, um, kind of the existing staff, and then interest that's being expressed in the chat about how these kinds of things can become more integrated into preparation uh, in for uh, in now in our uh, nursing uh, and uh, medical schools and other uh, schools right now preparing for the health professions. Right. I think the, the training piece is, is uh, really critical and exposure. Uh, it starts by making sure the legal team and the medical, te- medical team get to know each other on a first-name basis as much as possible uh, to break down some of those cultural barriers. Uh, as far as more formal training, we have, we have had blitz trainings with sort of all providers, all MAs, all RNs, uh, for a 30-minute or 45-minute uh, orientation to the issue. Um, and then as a result of the cases that come through, we make sure we feedback results um, to the medical team. So if there's a win around uh, a food stamp denial or an SSI denial or you know, re-enrollment um, in Medicaid, uh, the positive wins are fed back to the team in a way that the team learns um, that there were successes there from the initial referral, and it's sort of a positive reinforcing loop. We now have um, one of our physicians, Melissa Klein, runs a, an advocacy rotation for residents at the hospital where all interns now spend uh, one morning uh, hearing from the lawyers and from the doctors sort of co-presenting on the types of issues and solutions, and then a second morning where they're downtown, they go down to Job and Family Services, see what it's like to do a case intake for a public benefit. They go over to our over-the-Rhine um, facilities uh, at, at the free store food bank to see about job training and those sorts of issues. And what I find now from the training is uh, I will have a resident more easily present to me about the social issues than about child development, which you know could be concerning, but I'm, I'm just intrigued by the ability of, of uh, folks to come out of their, their medical school training and, and now think that this is actually the way medicine should be done. I'm also delighted when I hear a medical assistant who's raising her voice saying, I haven't seen the paralegal today is Deanna in, uh, as a notion that it really has become part of a a stitched together uh, program. Uh, I, we have not formally um, engaged with the law school. I know other programs around the country have and maybe very can comment it. My dream is to see medical students, social work students, and law students all sort of buying in and helping us design those triage uh, guidelines um, that, that Barry was talking about so that each is operating at the top of their uh, degree. 
Sounds great, Robin. I, I take this. I'm, I'm saying to Carol, note to open school <laughs> here at IHI, which is uh, our you know 70,000 uh, plus uh, students that we're engaging through the virtual environment and, and open school chapters. And I'm curious. We'll, we'll find out. You know whether uh, law students are finding their way or whether we might be able to kind of build on some of these connections. Lots of interesting questions that are coming in here. So I'm going to try and see if I can group some of them together. Some of it has to do with payment and wondering, uh, Tammy Snow's got a few comments in here and she says, here in Maine, our Medicaid program does not focus on preventive health care, which would be ultimately more cost effective. Others are wondering to what extent any states, um, you talked about many states being broke, uh, so this <laughs> may be a tough one right now, but whether states are interested in the states that are, you know, plugging away with the triple aim, uh, Carol, or whether private insurers are sort of taking a, a, a kind of a look at, at some of these connected issues here. Thoughts on that? Um, I, I don't know of too many states at the state level that are being terrifically strategic about this. There may be some, some things that are happening that I'm just not um, not plugged into, but it does one of the one of the things that we're learning a bit about is is how to put on different glasses, how to look through a different set of lenses at what's going on in a community. And there's some wonderful work uh, that's that's been done through the um, the Institute for Asset-Based Community Development, and we're, we're, we tend to be pretty familiar with community needs assessments, but we're less familiar with community asset assessments. Even though they may be pointing, you know, they may be surfacing some information that's quite related, uh, but there, are, even in communities that are poor, even in communities that are stressed, even in communities that are troubled in a variety of ways, there typically are deep wells of assets and resources available and whether it's on through an official function like legal aid whether it's through more informal associational structures like churches or clubs or tenant associations or neighborhood watch groups or whatever it may be um, there there are assets around and it seems to me that I would not wait around for action at a regional level or a state level. I think for those of you who are in the field who are serving individuals whose whose needs are only partially addressed by health care, you'll you'll know soon enough, you know, what those other needs are, to be alert to what are the assets around you. Um, community colleges, I mean there are all sorts of, of assets that we often overlook that could be crucially crucial allies in um, dealing with some of those upstream determinants. And I think that that offers some frontiers for the kinds of partnerships that we've been hearing about between healthcare and the legal profession. Okay, Barry? I, I yeah. would just like to, to add to that. Um, the prevention in the short run is going to be the harder sell. What my hope is is that doctors and lawyers will learn to work together themselves with other members of the community. And from a healthcare point of view, it may be secondary prevention. It may be the prevention of someone who has a chronic disease to prevent an exacerbation. So I think I think the idea is to be flexible to, if you will, go where the money is uh, now, both in terms of the needs of patients um, and not and and where there's at least some financial support, because the key. Is is this is going to take, you know, it's been two decades since we've started, and it will continue to take time for people to work this up. But the transformative aspect of bringing new thinking and a new view into, say, the healthcare system uh, is important. And actually, as I hear from legal aid colleagues, they're calling this preventive law because if there's a legal problem like an eviction, 
That's a legal catastrophe that leads to then a medical catastrophe. So preventive law is before the eviction, we see patients, and you can identify those who are at risk because they've been told they may be evicted. Our lawyers can prevent many evictions because there are a variety of arrangements that can be made. And I'll become impressed how, you know, when you think about stresses, we know homelessness is, but that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of the number of people, um, you know, threatened with eviction. And it's hard to do, take care of yourself and do all the things that we, we, we want for health and well-being when you're worried if you're going to have a home in a couple of weeks. Barry have, Barry, have there been any um, studies yet? Is there any way that uh, with, with all the sites that you're uh, engaging with and uh, Rob's work there, any kind of uh, research being done about the impact um, or what difference the intervention is making? Well, it, not in terms of the outcome except for one small study about patients with sickle cell and how much money you know, that families, whether it's at SSI or food stamps and, you know, having a lawyer accrued, you know, a financial value and if money has anything to do with health and resources, you know, that matters. I'm, I'm hopeful and uh, that this time of innovation, you know, funded by a variety of healthcare institutions, that this will provide opportunities for people to test this model, whether it's reducing ED visits, uh, you know, uh, improving quality and outcome for vulnerable, low-income people. Because remember, at every chronic disease, the outcome is worse for low-income people. And if, if doctors and hospitals are going to be judged on the outcome and they have a large proportion of low-income people, they're going to, it's going to look bad. And hopefully with bundle payments, the motivation will be to invest up front, uh, where right now it would be an additional expense. So uh, I think creative people will, as Carol introduced this, this is an idea who's only limited by the creative people who try and implement it at a community level. Great. Thank you very much. Well, I'm um, I'm uh, work, working on all these. By the way, I'm thrilled, as we're always thrilled, when people on chat actually uh, communicate and discuss with one another. So here are a couple of issues that have come up very quickly. Rob, uh, some folks want to know, uh, did you run into any issues in terms of the electronic health record? And I think you started to address some of that, and I think Barry alluded to some of the HIPAA issues or anything else in terms of uh, integration here, and I'm trying to find that initial question. The other uh, things that have come up, some people think that you, Barry, and you, Rob, are an example of the culture of pediatricians, which is much more collaborative, perhaps, than other physicians. Um, maybe we don't, we can, maybe Rob can sort of think about that one as well. And the third thing, and I don't think it was intended at all, social workers have a huge role to play in this whole paradigm, and uh, my bad, perhaps, in terms of not bringing out enough, I know from speaking with all of you ahead of time how much social workers are engaged. So somebody has uh, flagged that. So, Rob, I'm dumping all that in your lap for starters. <laughs> no, no problem. Okay. Um, so in terms of the medical record, I think there, there were two aspects to it. One is the case finding and building a template to identify issues. And, and I can do two issues at once by saying it was with social work at the table and, and legal aid to figure out which cases can safely go straight to the legal team, which ones, whether it's domestic violence or depression as a comorbid condition, um, in addition to the legal issue, should um, go to social work first. So they're certainly at the table and a key part of our team. That didn't have so many barriers. It really was the only, the only trick was when we referred it 
uh, in the referral section where we really have to have it exit the network and go out to legal aid for the referral piece. And ultimately what that took is RIR information services and their information services person sitting down and then working with an administrative team to make sure both legal uh, confidentiality, medical confidentiality on both, both sides were satisfied. Um, in terms of the collaborative nature of pediatricians versus some others, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer, I think Carol just used this term, is, you know, are we able to walk in another person's shoes? And I think it was uh, making sure the, the medical team began to know the legal team well enough to know there are lawyers out there whose mission is to stabilize families in poverty and it's, uh, whose mission is not, you know, the latest hedge fund merger SEC contract that they have to negotiate, but really that there's a whole class of lawyers out there who are truly committed to family well-being. Uh, especially low-income families. And I think if you can figure out the scenarios in which people can get to know each other or there is one successful win of a case and you figure out how to frame that, how to have the doctor, the, the healthcare person talk about it, the social worker or the lawyer talk about it in a meaningful way to open people's minds. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Rob. And I guess the last thing was whether or not uh, these, these didn't all necessarily go together. Any particular issues in terms of the electronic health record? record? Oh, I would, uh, no, the, the record itself, um, not a problem other than getting buy-in and, and adapting it. I think, again, the beauty of it is on the back end, you can study uh, the responses as long as you format it in the electronic health record positively, you can find uh, your prevalence rates and your referral rates among the doctors. Um, but the build itself within Epic for us, it, it was a very easy. We had previously used it in Logician, and the, again, the only hitch was in the um, in hitting the referral button, making sure it lands outside the hospital network and, and does so in a confidential way. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, John uh, is is uh, reminding me it's true. Just in case anyone has any doubt, this is a global program, and we have somebody on from Turkey today who's uh, also uh, contributing to some thoughts. So welcome, uh, thrilled to have you here. Hulya, I think is, is your name. Thank you. Um, and uh, I guess I want to just um, also flag, uh, even though John very nicely threw my photo up there, let's go back to that driver diagram. Rob has been working on this, uh, and um, we'll probably just probably leave this with you today. You're welcome to t- download it. It's a driver diagram, and it's uh, trying to begin to put the pieces of this kind of work together using quality improvement ideas and methods. Is there anything you want to say about it quickly, Rob? Um, the key is uh, acceptable aims across the board, doable aims, um, sitting down with the legal partner. This is a key driver diagram that's been heavily edited by the social workers and, and lawyers in the clinic, and, and so it really hits on a, a roadmap uh, that everyone bought into. Obviously, the specific interventions would vary by the place, um, but to me, it was a very helpful way to get everybody on the same page and to guide some of the measurement we wanted to do. Okay, very, very good. Um, I want to just mention very quickly, uh, we're not done yet, but we're getting up to the top of the hour here. Um, every so many months, uh, there's another seminar uh, available to you from IHI on the Triple Aim, Triple Aim, excuse me, from Real World Learning, Real, boy, I'll try that again, Real World Learning to an Achievable Plan. And there is one uh, coming up, and all the information is on IHI.org, and uh, there's a slide around that somewhere. Uh, I, I surprising John. Here we go. April 11th to 12th in San Diego, California, which sounds very nice. 
nice right now, but probably will be nice in <laughs> that's if you're sitting here in, in Boston on this rainy day. So uh, take advantage of that. Uh, take a uh, you know perusal of some things coming on, um, different projects and offerings, public offerings from the Triple Aim. And as Carol, I think can attest, the more we learn, the more we learn, and the more that's rolled into every single program. And I think that's part of how the Triple uh, Aim initiative works, right? I mean, well, it is. You know, for those of uh, you on the call who may have been working with us on that or, or are curious about it, um, we really, we really think using improvement thinking to kind of tackle what's the aim and and what are what's our sense of purpose about all of this? How are we going to address all three of those areas with some measures? And then I think where this where this uh, conversation today has huge resonance is what's in our portfolio of projects because we know there's not one single project that's going to get us to triple aim results and more and more we can see that the projects that really have an impact are going to transcend they're going to they're going to be bridged bridging out of or beyond the healthcare system so here we have another entire um, kind of element that that a triple aim a coalition of, of some sort could add to their portfolio and really get some mileage out of. That sounds great. I do see on chat that somebody has already said, uh, Carolyn said, I will definitely introduce this model to my RNBSN students at UMass Boston, where I teach in our health promotion class, which is embracing uh, social issues that cause healthcare disparities. So I'm sure that's music to everyone's ears around here. Uh, Barry, um, and maybe we'll just go around the horn with just some final comments. Somebody is asking here they're, I think they're, uh, they're eager to dig into material, uh, maybe how to follow up um, with you, with your organization, where, where, what, what kind of reading they could do, uh, et cetera. The, uh, the website for the Medical Legal Partnership contains a lot of material and is a good way, place to start to, to lay the groundwork. Really what's happening around the country, after you sort of do that, the next step is through whatever connections you have in the community is go, if you're on the health side, go speak to your legal aid folks, and that's what we tell the legal aid. It's starting that conversation. I think more people in legal aid know about medical legal partnerships than the health side. But it's really, you know, that initial discussion, and once once people start talking, um, then we can provide technical assistance. I also, and, and it's while it's still early, I suggest people start small because you do this with too many lawyers in too many places, and it's not going to work. I'd start with one lawyer in one clinical setting. Once that lawyer and the doctors figure out how to work together after a year, then they can train doctors and lawyers in other settings. This is not something you want to take to scale in your own your own situation. It's such cultural differences that, you, you know, you need something small that's monitored and supported where people can learn from each other, and you will be able to build it out. But this way you've developed the expertise internally that can provide the, 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 the troubleshooting, you know, as it expands. All right. Thank you very much. Um, yep, and a reminder, somebody just asked, uh, there is the website. We've put it into chat. It's on that slide as well, uh, www.medical-legalpartnerships.org. And, uh, you know, let us know. You can uh, email us at info at IHI.org and let us know what you learned. We're very thrilled that you all did some networking together. Rob, some final thoughts? Uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, it, I agree with Barry. Start small, build it on personal relationships, and you realize the common ground. And uh, by then, you're crossing boundaries, as Carol alluded to. So, um, I've been I've been absolutely ecstatic with how it's rolled out in, in Cincinnati, and I'm happy to if people want to touch base with me about keys to success. I do think the peer-to-peer -peer sharing is another important way to go to learn about the program. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Rob.
excuse me, for being part of this today. I do want to acknowledge that uh, people introduced, in addition to um, preventive law, the concept or the title of legal nurse consultant um, kind of has, is, is emerging, and uh, I guess we'll, we'll hear more about that as well. Carol, any final thoughts on this today? Well, only to make it uh, unanimous, I think the theme here is that when you're starting, small is beautiful, and there are lots and lots of tools on the IHI website in our How to Improve section. Uh, pull out those, dust off those PDSA forms, and sit down with your legal aid person and, and get going. Uh, get that wheel of, of learning and improvement spinning away, and, and uh, we're sure that you're going to have some stories that are just as exciting and just as great as the ones we've heard from Barry and Rob. Okay. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Rob. Thanks to all of you. Next up on WIHI, January 26, a sneak preview perhaps of what's intended to be a very public and public-driven initiative. Have, have you had the conversation helping loved ones discuss end-of-life preferences with Ellen Goodman, uh, award-winning columnist, and some and others who are very involved in a very, very exciting and important endeavor. So, uh, Put that on your calendars now, perhaps. The webpage um, about this uh, January 26 program is now available on iChai.org. If you check out w, excuse me, our website, you'll find audio download of this program by tomorrow, as well as some nice resources that Vicki Minden puts together. Uh, a reminder, when you get off the program today, you can download the chat, you can download the slides, and we really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to fill out a brief survey that pops up. We want to know what worked for you today and how to continue to make WIHI a better program. If you missed anything at all or if many things that I've thrown out here are confusing, email info at IHI.org. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and a special welcome to the team, Northeastern University Co-op Rachel Yates. And Richard joined us as well in the studio today, also a Northeastern Co-op, to learn about the program. We've got some fun original music that opens and closes the program by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It is my privilege, as I often say, and it still is, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>